welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is about international medical graduates, and I have a panel of international medical graduates that have their medical career right now in the United States. Well, your host also is an international medical graduate. And the reason that I really wanted us to focus on that is that there was a paper that recently published by Dr. Aisha Bhatt when she actually investigated, uh, along with her co-authors, bias against international medical graduates as they apply to residency or fellowship programs. The way she went about this is by actually doing surveys of program directors and asking questions. There's a link to the paper in the podcast notes, as well as here um, on the YouTube uh, version of the podcast. And I really urge you to actually look at it and read it and comprehend the data that are presented. What the paper uncovered, albeit descriptive analysis, but it uncovered a lot of information that shows that international medical graduates are at a disadvantage even before they start. What that means is that you could possibly be discriminated against and not get residency or a fellowship spot simply because of the fact that you are an international medical graduate. We all know that patients deserve to be served and to be treated by the best physician available who can provide the best care regarding, regardless of race, ethnicity, where they come from and where they graduated from. If you're a patient, I promise you, you want the most qualified physician to take care of you. And what this paper has shown that this is not always the case. This is not always the case. What it showed that despite the fact that one third of the workforce could be international medical graduates in in oncology, again, the chances of being accepted into a fellowship program or into a residency program, if you are an international medical graduate is 50% or 50%, while if you are a graduate from an American medical school is over 90%. So I really uh, uh, assembled... um, a panel of international medical graduates, including a senior investigator, Dr. Tony Schwery, who is a professor at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Harvard Medical School, and who has mentored a lot of students, fellows, and residents, uh, along with uh, uh, several international medical graduates at various uh, uh, phases of their career, a uh, couple in residency, one in fellowship, one in, again, I think that is really important. And my ask was, tell us about this investigation. Tell us about that paper. What did you learn? What are the issues? What are the findings? And what can we do to overcome these challenges so we can have equity between IMGs and non-IMGs, because this is the only way to serve our patients better. So I hope you can actually step back and listen to this episode and really understand what the findings mean. 
and how they can actually affect uh, patients ultimately, because we are all either patients currently, prior previous patients or future patients. Now, before I air the episode that I taped with my guest panel, I would like to plug the show and ask you to subscribe to it, rate it, and write a brief review. You can also ask me for the amazing Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt. I will mail that to you. And and don't forget to visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com. And don't forget to let me know how I'm doing and offer ideas and suggestions. Without further ado, IMGs in America. All right. Well, uh, oh my goodness. I have four first timers on Healthcare Unfiltered uh, today with a, for a very important topic. And I have um, another uh, that keeps popping up every so often on Healthcare Unfiltered, uh, a recurrent guest that we all love and, and cherish. Today's podcast is about international medical graduates specific you know in general broadly and in hematology and oncology specifically so personally i'm an international medical graduate and everybody on today's show is an international medical graduate you're going to try to do some introductions try to understand are there really struggles is there real perceptions what's what are these struggles and really dissect a recent paper that was written and uh, by one of my guests okay well, thanks everybody. We're gonna do a round of introductions here and we're gonna start by uh, the oldest person on this podcast, uh, excluding me, which will be Dr. Tony Schwery. Tony, uh, a little bit about you and um, maybe when you when did you come to the, to the US? We'll go over your journey a little bit uh, in more detail, but um, just uh, briefly for now. So I'm the oldest guy. It's a great way to, <laughs> to start. Uh, no, thank you, Shady, for hosting us, uh, you know, today and highlighting and, you know, um, some of our parts of our journey here. So I uh, I was born in uh, Beirut, uh, Lebanon, and uh, actually did my training there, uh, meaning my medical school. And when we say um, international medical grad, uh, or foreign medical grad, although no one should use the word FMGs, except in government document, because they're usually 30, 50 years behind. Um, you know, it's where you did your medical school. It's not college, it's not this. So you could have done everything, college, everything, let's say in Russia, came to the US and did your medical school uh, you know, at the University of Rochester, and when did your residency and fellowship somewhere else, but with some, went back, you're not an international medical grad. Okay, just to be careful, who did put those rules and this, no one knows. Uh, so I did my medical school in Beirut, I went to a French Jesuit uh, university. And after that, I decided to come to the US. So I applied for residency and uh, later on fellowship and Cleveland was what I call my American birth. So I'm a Clevelander. And um, after that, uh, for family reason, for opportunity reason, and many things, I end up moving to Boston, 
after my fellowship. So I came to the U.S. in 1000 or 1001, 1007, I moved to Boston. And since that time, I've been in Boston at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, where I'm GU oncologist. Tony, thank you. It's really a, a pleasure to uh, to be with you. We're, we're not going to talk a lot about your academics, but I think everybody who's listening really uh, understands what you have brought to the field of GU oncology. So it's always a pleasure to have you on. Let's move uh, to uh, Tarek. Yes. Um, hi, uh, my name is Tarek Haikal. I'm a third year uh, hematology oncology fellow currently at Duke. Uh, like everyone here, I'm born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon. I completed medical school in the Lebanese University, which is the government school uh, in Lebanon. Uh, and then as all IMGs, I, we always end up having a gap year if you wanted to match straight from med school. So I did it as a prelim internal medicine resident at uh, the American University of Beirut and then matched at Hurley Medical Center, which is um, one of the community hospitals for uh, Michigan State University, and then now matched at Duke for, for uh, fellowship training. I am mm -hmm. a proud IMG as, as everyone here on the podcast. Tarek, when did you come here? When did you finish your medical school? So I graduated uh, summer of 2016. Okay. I came to the US summer of 2017. Great. Uh, Nazli. Hi everyone, uh, I'm Nazli, Nazli Dizman. I am originally from Turkey. I have a little bit of a longer story. I went to um, medical school in Turkey and I did residence in Turkey. And in my chief year, I was able to come to the United States. So I came to the United States in 2016. I was in LA at that time working with Dr. Paul for around three years and I matched at Yale. Now I'm a PGY3 and internal medicine residency program at Yale. That's wonderful. Ziad. Hey everyone. Um, so my name is Ziad. I um, was born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon, did medical school there, went to the same school as Tony, so did a seven year curriculum in the sort of French model, uh, which essentially includes the equivalent of undergrad. Uh, then in 2018, when I graduated, I moved to the U.S. and started working with uh, Tony Schwery at Dana-Farber, as well as uh, other folks, Ellie Van Allen and uh, Srinivaswanathan on GU oncology and computational genomics. Um, and then in uh, 2021, I started uh, residency in internal medicine, so I'm in my second year, and I'm currently uh, applying for a month fellowship. Um, so yeah, pleasure to be here. Excellent. Aisha. And correct me if I'm not saying your name correct uh, uh, properly. Uh, no, you're right. Um, so, hey, everyone. I'm Aisha. I'm from Pakistan. Uh, I'm also an international medical graduate. So I did my med school at Al Khan University in Karachi. I'm originally from Islamabad in Pakistan, and I came here for my electives at Yale back in 2019. And then I was like, OK, I want to work here. So I came back. Well, once I graduated med school in 2021 for my postdoc uh, in hematology at Yale with Dr. Alfred Lee, and I'm applying for internal medicine residency right now. Great. So, you know, I want to start, Aisha, we're going to get to your paper because it's very provocative, but I really want to start by asking a simple question, which is everybody who has come to the U.S. had to go to the U.S. embassy in your home country 
and apply for a visa. Was that difficult for you, Nazli? I mean, was it like just you walk in, you walk, you walk in and they just give it to you? Or do they get 20%, 30%? It's hard to believe 100%, no? Um, I think it uh, was not easy. Um, the visa process requires us to get documentation from our workplace, where we were born, and a lot of different stuff. And it involves an interview, and then they give you the visa. The visa applying to the visa and getting it is not a problem, but to be able to get that work visa, you have to find a position in the United States. Someone needs to sponsor you. And it also in, is impacted by the um, factors in your home country. For example, the year that I applied to, um, to the visa, actually the night that I had sent my documentations to City of Hope, we had a coup attempt in Turkey. So the first person I emailed was Dr. Paul after I called my family when I was in Istanbul. I told him that there is this like some turmoil, FYI, I sent my documents. So it's not just a visa situation. I think there are like several other um, things that contribute to the hardship. Ziad in Lebanon, I mean, uh, you. it was recent for you, like just uh, four, year, four or five years ago. Um, applying to a visa, is it a student visa, work visa? Was it easy, difficult? Yeah, uh, I mean, I came on a, on a work visa. Um, so I, similar to what Nazi was describing, was sort of uh, need to be sponsored for a job. Uh, at the time, it was a research position. Um, it was, uh, I mean was difficult in the sense that there were documents that needed to be provided. There was a lot of back and forth done. Uh, it was, um, you need to provide a lot of documentation, et cetera. And there's a, there's a, there's a turnaround time mostly to get, to get an appointment. So we started planning like, I don't know, six months in advance, maybe seven months in advance to get it on time. So it takes some planning, takes some documentation. And I would say definitely, Definitely not 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 a seamless process, uh, but I, it was it was I would say one of many obstacles uh, along the way. But, but but Tarek, one issue is the process. You just have to do paperwork, and it doesn't matter. It could take two months. You do the paperwork, and they just stamp it. The other issue is you do the paperwork, and they still have a quota. They say we're gonna only let fifty percent of people from Beirut come in to the US, is there such a thing? Like, is there, or is it just, if you have the paperwork, it's a slam dunk? So for me, um, I, I I applied for a J-1 visa, which is an exchange student uh, visa, meaning um, it's easily sponsored uh, between, you know, like the institution that you get into will open a sponsorship for you through the ECFMG. And you, it's not as difficult as, for example, the H-1B that, you know, others um, have taken. So for J-1, it tends to be a bit easier to get. And it's it's kind of straightforward with no quota. Um, I think the quota applies to H-1B that is sometimes non-institutional. So it's a lottery and like there's a certain number of, of visas that they take per year. Um so for me, yeah, but, you know, with J1, obviously, there's a lot of uh, pros, but also a lot of cons, like meaning, you know, you have to go back to your country once you finish whatever research or training you were uh, destined to come here to do. And um, and that's a whole other process when you want to stay in the country, 
like you have to get into a waiver process, whether it's a job that sponsors that waiver, whether you have other conditions like that allows you to apply for a waiver. So while it is an easier visa to get in general with no quota or anything like that, it, it definitely has a lot of restrictions attached to it as compared to, for example, the work visa that can be harder to get, but has more leeway for you to be able to stay here easier and sponsor yourself into other uh, like a into a green card or something that allows you to work here more long term. Tony, I don't know how was it in back in when you applied because when I applied, which was a little bit before you, uh, one of the most important thing for the American consulate was they wanted to make sure that whoever they grant the visa to eventually comes back to their home country. So it was a judgment call. Obviously, they realized that I'm sure they have stats and data that not everybody comes back. But there was, you know, one routine question the counselor or the interviewer would ask you, are you planning on coming back? When you applied, was there was there such a thing? I have to tell you, I mean, it's over 21, 22 years. I personally, uh, you know, I had the interview. I don't you know, totally remember I came on an H1, which ended up being, you know, good and not every hospital give that. Uh, but, um, you know, it. I think there was a lot of questions that, you know, how is it? What are you doing, etc. Luckily, my university was one that, you know, would be recognized if we go through the right um uh, you know, uh, write exams and the long process. And that's something we can uh, talk about, but because we would have our own exams, you know, the French system, et cetera. And we had to study for the American exam at the same time. And in my case, I don't know the case of others, I had to travel for one of them uh, to the U.S. to do the exam, the expenses, the things. I think it's, it's a, I would say it's a, at least for international medical grad, the process of selection is probably way more than the American medical grad. Because you know, you have that option. You can get selected, selected and filtered, filtered, filtered. So you end up having a task force and currently at least with with the oncologist, there's around uh, Aisha knows all those numbers better than me, 30 to 40 percent of all practicing oncologists happen to be international uh, medical grad. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the selection process is way more because there's so many steps. So you end up really with people that one didn't give up, one very resilient, uh, a group of people that through the process get asked or ask themselves, not asked, do you want to really come? Do you want to really come? Do you want to come? And if they end up, that means they went through 10 different times between themselves and others that they really want to come. So it's really a, a different selection uh, process. I, you know, to answer you again, I think uh, the people that interview us at the embassy want to first make sure that uh, no security issue, because many of us come not, you know, from countries where um, war, civil war, violence, uh, Nazli mentioned a coup. Well, this was the first coup since maybe the Ataturk. We have a coup 
in in the lab. It's very common other places. So, you know, and I don't blame them. You don't want to, I mean, this is the right process to go through, but it, it brings me back, you know, when you come here, it's it just, we've been through a different experience. You, you, hear, you hear about the coup in the U.S., I think, probably since the Civil War, there wasn't really any, and up until January 6th, there was... Let, no, let's not go over January 6th here, okay? This is not I'm, a I'm just saying, show. there was nothing, but, but that was a reality. There was really nothing in internal conflict right. that is hard, where outside, it's probably the opposite. So, uh, Aisha, I mean, uh, you... Something sparked your interest. You decided to do a survey or a paper or something. Just take me through what made you do this. Did you have a personal experience? Did something happen? A friend, colleague, yourself? I mean, something like this, um, at least in my experience, certain situations trigger it. So tell me what made you decide to do this investigation. Uh, yeah, so... Being an international medical graduate myself, yes, I have experienced the bias. Um, maybe because I'm so early on in my career, lesser than other people. Uh, but so it was a, an aspect of that, and then an aspect of general diversity, equity, inclusion research. Like my mentor was very involved in DEI research. And during our discussions, we had a discussion about IMGs and where they stand in relation to DEI. And, where we are trying to promote underrepresented minorities, which is excellent. Uh, there is a lot of bias against IMGs too in the recruitment process. And we we had all felt that, but we did not have any concrete data. So that's how this came about. And we were like, uh, we are gonna survey all the program directors of hematology oncology, both adult and pediatric in the United States. And when we are asking them the typical DEI questions about their initiatives and their perceptions and about underrepresented minorities, uh, we are going to ask them about IMGs as well and what their perceptions are. And that's how the study came about. And at the end of the survey, when we did our all our data analysis, the findings for the IMGs were much more stark than other any other group. And that's how this paper came about because the bio perceptions against IMGs are like generally a perception of disadvantage was so strong that it overshadowed everything else. Aisha, when you mentioned that you experienced bias, are you able to share with listeners a story? To like, what, what do you mean by that? So personally, I feel like I have been very, very lucky because I my first exposure to the U.S. healthcare system was during my electives, which I did at Yale, and then postdoc, I continued in the same place. And generally, the program over here and my mentor, Dr. Lee, like, it has been amazing. So my experience has been so, so, so good compared to a lot of my friends and what I've heard. Now that I'm in the application process for internal medicine, that's when... Um, you see a lot of places, they'll clearly tell you that we will not even consider applications from international graduates. And it's just, they'll never even see your application. It doesn't matter all the hard work that you put in all over the years, because it's just going to be filtered out. So during that process, and a lot of things that I, I had heard from friends and from people who had already graduated ahead of me in med school, that has been like, I've experienced it throughout. Ziad, have you, um, you took a different path. You actually did research first and, you know, then you did residency. 
it's a little bit hard for a listener. Let's say I have a listener. <clears throat> They're not going to understand that you had a bias and then you matched at Harvard, right? I mean, you can understand that somebody who's listening to this is saying, okay, well, I mean, they're telling me there's a bias, but this guy is at Harvard. So so how can you describe something, a story or something to illustrate to somebody who's listening um, what you've experienced that might that could bring it home to them? Yeah, I mean, I think I've been um, I think it's what I what I've been able to get to uh, is, is I think a combination of through a combination of uh, a lot of um good mentorship and a lot of uh an amazingly supportive environment with obviously quite a bit of hard work um i do think that sort of a number of things needed to line up for me to be able to to sort of do well in in sort of respect but but that i think for me i felt like there were a number of structural barriers uh that i had to get through to be able to get into residency wherever that may be uh to begin with and i think these structural barriers we alluded to the first one which is visas and and i will say it's not only sort of the fact of getting a visa to come but also um the all the associated uh structural barriers when applying for residency there are a number of residencies do not want any people on any sort of visas uh other other residency programs who uh want certain types of visas and then you have to navigate this entire process and sort of go scouring through hundreds of websites to figure that out when you're applying uh that initially sort of limits uh what you're able to uh to to apply to and then so i had to navigate that i was on a particular visa at the time i applied on an h1b visa and so that sort of limited things i was through going through the process of applying for a green card that had not been settled by the time i applied um, so that was one consideration. The other, the other considerations are, as uh, Aisha was pointing out, there's there are a number of programs who flat out would not consider IMGs whatsoever, and and so that sort of limits your scope even further, regardless of of visa issues. Um, and then you go into the third problem, which is really standing out, um, because there are a lot of applications from everywhere, and there's a lot of sort of uh, I would say prestige signaling that goes on in these applications and filtering and sort of, I think that is a third barrier. Um, and so I think all these structural barriers make it incredibly difficult uh, to do well. I feel like, again, for me, it was through a combination of a million factors, including extremely helpful mentorship, hard work that I was able to achieve that, and then trying to tick all the boxes that are required to, to do well in the match. But I will say it's not for a lack of, of, of barriers and lack of, of difficulties. I'm sure that all applicants, whether locals or internationals, have their own stories. But I do feel, as has been pointed out before, that just the amount of extra barriers and the amount of extra hoops that uh, we go through as IMGs make us more battle-hardened than we're. Maybe that makes us stronger on the other end, but it's definitely something else. I want to have Tony comment, but before Tony comment, just because Tony, I, I'm saving you to a come uh, have a question for Nasli, and then I wanted to comment. One of the things Nasli that struck me as I listened to you is the long journey, and that's probably what Ziad also uh, alluded to. Um, you know, in other words, if you are not an IMG, you probably didn't need to spend three years at City of Hope, and maybe you wanted to, but uh, 
maybe part of it because you thought it will improve your opportunity to get a residency or whatever it is and, and another IMG doesn't need to do that so do you feel that the journey is always longer for IMG because that would be a perfect segue to hear from Tony um, after you you comment on that yeah, I think um, the majority of the IMGs would do a research year or two or three years um, before residency. I do believe that most of them really enjoy it. I think most of the IMGs coming to the United States are attracted by the research opportunities, although it doesn't change the fact that the journey may be a little bit longer. Um, in my case, if I was born in the United States, I wouldn't have probably done residency twice but I would have probably done research. Tony, what are your thoughts you heard from, and I'm gonna to go to Tarek after that. Yeah, I mean, now experience is the first thing that people, you know, IMGs coming worry about is the visa, knowing that there are IMGs that are, you know, Americans. So you could, you know, be an Irish American born here, et cetera, and suddenly you have this affinity to go back to Cork or this and do your medical school there because you're, grandparent live there and come back, you're an IMG. And maybe you're born in the, your parents were physicians here, born in the US, but go back to your country and wanna come back, you're an IMG, but American. But for the majority of IMG, they don't have US citizenship or green card. The visa goes hand in hand with the place uh, to match the residency. The problem is, I would say, my own experience, the vast majority of the hospital don't know how to handle the visas. They think they know, but actually they do not. Why is that? Today I was on a search committee. I can't tell more. I asked a question, big search committee. Do you accept international applicant? Everybody was, you know, funny enough, the two people were IMGs. And uh, and I, they're like, well, well we have, but, 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 and they looked at the medical school bylaw. They do accept, but I said international, I didn't say, but there is no understanding. So in my experience, when you follow from A to Z the thing, usually there is a department or a division in the hospital. It's under HR, where there is one person, rarely two, that handle the visa. This person usually is a paralegal, not a lawyer, and you are at their mercy. Luckily, in my situation, if I remember all of them, everyone was perfect and amazing. But you never know. Your life is at their mercy. You don't know if this person is competent or not, lazy or not, good or not. And I'm going to use words that, you know, but this is the reality. And even if you're the head of the hospital, you are at the mercy of this person because you don't understand anything about this. You know, your first passport maybe was at age 25 when you travel, you, you don't. So luckily I've been in good places, just but I have had talking to other experiences where the, the pe people were deciding that person, whether this applicant should come on J1 or H1 out what is the quota should be, who should we accept, et cetera, because the decision makers on who to take, the physicians, this program directors that had no idea what the visa is. You know what I mean? And, and fair enough, when some of them travel different countries, they don't know what visa is. So it's a huge discordance and you have to advocate for yourself. So 
I I would love to see what other things, Shadi. I'm not taking over. No, 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 the, no. That's that's cash, actually that's, but that's a very important thing people don't talk about. That is very perfect, and that is something I want to ask Tarek and Aisha on the, the visa piece. I really want to hone into this. A lot of Americans don't understand this. And Tarek alluded to this a little bit earlier about the J-1 and the H-1. And Tarek, maybe you can explain the difference, but what I'm really what what really bothers me is if you have a J-1 visa and you are in residency and you decide to go visit family anywhere, you have to go back to the embassy and apply again. And there's a sense of fear that you may not get that visa again and your entire future is up in the air. Take us through that process of what you go through visa-wise, because I bet you many folks don't understand the, even the anxiety level that you have to go through. That's that's very true. Um, I remember, you know, when I came here, my residency coordinator uh, was really good. And she used to tell me, don't go to Lebanon in the last two months of your visa, because if you don't get your visa renewed, we, we still want you to come back. And so if you have less than two months on your J-1 and it's about to expire, the admitting uh, immigration officer can deny your entry. And, um, and it is very anxiety provoking. I remember, uh, you know, I promised myself when I came to here that I wouldn't let one year go by without going home and visit. And uh, I knew all about the J-1 restrictions and problems because it's a yearly renewal. Um, so J-1 renews with your contract. And when you only get your offer letter for being promoted, like say from PGY-1 to PGY-2, that's when you can reapply for another, they call it DS-2019, which is the document that allows you to reapply for your renewal of the stamp, the visa stamp, so that you can actually come back. So when you get the offer letter, which is about December of your academic year, then you apply for your DS-2019 renewal, which takes about two months. And then you're like, close to February and then you're still like not sure. So I used to apply for the visa appointment um, way before so that I can get the earliest visa appointment by the time I get to Lebanon so that I can guarantee that I can actually get the passport back by the time I'm actually going back to the US. Um, because also there, you know, you, you have to go to the embassy and then get the stamp and then wait for your passport to come so that you can actually go back. So I did that for two years. Um, but then COVID happened. Uh, and then the third year in of residency through third year of fellowship. So I'm getting close to four years that I haven't been back home. Um, and it, I couldn't even get married. I couldn't do anything. Um, and so I had to get married here. I had to have my first child here. Uh, and I couldn't go back home at all, uh, partly because of COVID and the uncertainty of, uh, you know, visa appointments, uh, embassies were closed, airports were shutting down. I couldn't risk my career. Uh, and another part was, um, I, I don't know if people recall, but at the time the president decided to ban certain visas. And so for people that were in the U.S., we were fine and we were able to renew our stay. But for folks that were overseas or that decided to go during that time, the, the embassies were not even stamping any type of visas. 
And so for these reasons, I, I worked really hard to get to where I am today. And, and I, I just could not jeopardize it. Luckily, I, I didn't have real emergencies that would warrant me to go, but, um, but I, it was very stressful and scary for, for years. Um, yeah. yeah. That's amazing. Aisha, give, give me maybe the top two findings of your paper. Um, let's discuss, you know, number one and number two. Uh, and were, were you surprised by these findings? Uh, yeah, we were surprised in a way. Uh, so what we asked program directors about their perceptions of different applicant groups and who they consider to be advantaged and disadvantaged. And they were rating it on a scale of like one to five about how advantage in the recruitment process for fellowship different applicant groups are. And we included all et ethnic groups or races and underrepresented minorities, and we included IMGs and also age over 40. And when we finally analyzed the results, IMGs, non-US citizen IMGs were the most viewed as the most disadvantaged group. And they were more disadvantaged even when compared to historically underrepresented minorities. And they were more um, disadvantaged compared to every other group, and this was statistically significant. The second most disadvantaged group was applicants over age 40, and third most disadvantaged were US citizen IMGs. Aisha, sorry to interrupt, but just for so we could understand, when you say disadvantage, you mean they have less likely to be accepted, just to understand the definition? Yes, yes. So this is the program director's perception of who will have the toughest time or the easiest time while applying for fellowships, hematology, oncology fellowships. And this is both adult and pediatric uh, hemonc PDs. So this, these were the three groups who were most disadvantaged. And this was more significant uh, in academic programs versus community programs, which was expected that the PDs of academic centers were viewing IMGs as more disadvantaged compared to PDs of community hospitals. And PDs of smaller programs were also uh, viewing IMGs as more disadvantaged compared to larger programs. And small and large was less than nine follows a year to more than nine follows. Uh, less than nine follows to more than nine follows, yeah. Nasli, do uh, these findings surprise you? Um, statistically significant somehow surprised me that actually really means that it is there. I mean, in the data of, I, I, I believe, 50 program directors, I, I, if I'm not wrong in the paper. Um, it's, it's, yeah, 73. 73. Okay. It's, yeah. I think that's, that, that surprises me in a way that I knew that, I expected that, but it still surprised me. Um, I'm applying to fellowship this year, and there is a spreadsheet going around. Actually, we talked about this uh, with Ziad before, too. Everyone writes there whether they're an IMG, whether they're a, um, which, which um, program they are in, and how many programs they applied and how many fellowship interview invites they got. And you can, you can see that in that list, too. If it is a, a non-US IMG, so how, they how apply do you, to 50 programs and then they get two, three interviews. But how do you account how do you account to academic accomplishment? I mean, Tony, you're in a you're in a position to, you know, again, as a professor and as a senior investigator, you you know that there could be an IMG who's done 
three years of research, like, you know, a lot of folks here like Nazli or Ziad and, and have papers and applying. And then there's a non-IMG who has not done any research. Are we saying that the non-IMG always holds an advantage regardless of the academic accomplishments of an IMG? Are we are we able to, like, scientifically to say that based on Aisha's findings? You know, I mean, I did a lot of work and reading about this. I don't know deep down if the problem is ignorance, laziness, or what you said, it's it's a real discrimination. And I'll tell you why. But on one hand, I mean, yes, there is. The data is the data. What Aisha did, that very few did in the past, is she provided the hardcore data. And hopefully, you know, as part of the IMG oncologists and other you know, movement, we will continue to provide hardcore scientific, you know, data, not just opinion, expert opinion, what we feel. The one thing I discovered, which I still have to dig more into it, is training programs in the U.S., many of them, not all of them, are T32. So these are uh, NIH-based, and Nasli did a lot of homework uh, on that T32. So if you don't have at least a green card, permanent residency, or this, where are you going to get the money from, right, to fund that person, okay? So you could use that in a way to say, oh, my budget, if I'm a small program, doesn't allow me for one or two uh, IMG. Okay, that's great. But to me, if it's a pro as a program director, that's an extremely lazy uh, way, either lazy or lazy is the right term, to justify decreasing my pool of applicants. You know, it's very lazy. Well, okay, the healthcare system has so much money and so much expenditures that you should be able through your, I don't know, what insurance, what healthcare system you're on, if you're hospital X, to through fundraising, etc., or through going to, you know, to the system, we have a democratic system in this country. Thankfully, knowing some of us don't come from a democratic system, uh, to go and advocate to change this. Nobody even thought it's like following like herds. So if this is the problem, tell us. We we'll go and sure. to the and, and change it. So sure. we don't know what's the issue. I heard that one to two times uh, only, but it's it's not a, a, a it's a weak argument. So let, 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 let's try to get some data. So Ziad, in your program, how many residents are there uh, at the Dana-Farber uh, or the Brigham's? How many total residents in John Madison? Um, so the categorical residents are about Correct. 40 years. So um, 120. Yeah. What's the percent of IMGs of these 120? Um, of the categoricals, I think... There's about one uh, or two a year um, wow. of the wow. categoricals. Wow. Um, so about like total of about five, maybe, or four. Tarek, how about in your program? I'm the only one uh, in the fellowship. I mean, yeah. I mean, but in the, the residency, I'm not sure because I don't know the total number, but I also think they take one or two a year. Yeah. The reason I ask, because these numbers obviously speak volume, but here's my other question. Um, do you know how many applied, right? I mean, so 
I mean, it's fair to say, uh, uh, like I can tell you honestly, when I was applying way before your time, I didn't apply to anything in the Harvard system. I thought they'd laugh at me. Uh, I'm not going to lie. So, I mean, uh, I, I, they still are laughing. They continue right to laugh. Right no, no, I know. I know. Tony, I, I knew what he's going to say. See, immediately, right away. But but the point is, like, you know, I, I think you want to know the denominator to be able to be very scientific about this. If you're the only one who applied and you got it, it's 100%. So do do we know do we know how many people applying? I mean, Aisha, did you look at that, for example? Is there any data into how many folks apply uh, to these programs and then the percent acceptance? Because that would be very important. So I don't think we have it for individual institutions, but NRMP has a charting of outcomes every year where they show the number of applicants that applied to all residency positions in the U.S and the number who are accepted, and it usually varies somewhere around 50%. Like there's a 50% match rate for IMGs, plus or minus 2%. How about non-IMGs? Uh, they're over 90%, as far as I remember. I may be okay. wrong, but they're around 90%. But that that's really important. I bring these numbers because I, I, I did not know these numbers, but that's very important. That what we're saying is IMGs have a, 50% chance of getting residency in this country, non-IMGs have over 90% chance of getting the in this country. And that really illustrates the, the long road. I mean, Tony, I mean, th these are the numbers, 50% over 90%. So put on your, uh, your academic scientific hat. How would you try to investigate this? What Aisha did is great, but it was a survey. So what would you do uh, to to take that to the next step, yeah. No, I I I look at at the problem from at any problem. You know, when you ask this, let's get out of IMG. Let's talk society. You know, I'm I'm a more big picture person. Um, I look at a problem from two rights and equity. That's one. Second, economy, very important. So. If I'm interested in having the best country on earth, that's the United States. I hope the six of us on this agree. Otherwise, we wouldn't be coming here because I strongly, strongly agree, you know, with the statement I made. I still think that Beirut is the best thing, but that's fine. Keep going. Yeah, that's what you think. But but is this we want the education and we want also the doctors to be the best. Great. This is the second. And if you want the doctors and the researchers to be the best, you have to do cast the wider net. The denominator, it's so important, way more important than the numerator. That it, and instead of that, you can't exclude IMG. You can't exclude women. You can't exclude minorities. Because once you start excluding, so your denominator is becoming smaller. So your opportunity of finding the best in the best country goes significantly economic maths one on one that's it, it's really has and of course there is the equity there is all that but i'm just talking about imagine shadi if you want to live in the best in the best most affordable everything uh state in the u.s and someone give you the choice of four states what the heck compared to the 50 states it, it's it's a matter of Casting a wide net. And again, if the problem is these are T32, we don't accept, that's very lazy. That's extremely lazy answer. 
Come Masli, to us and we'll tell you why it's a lazy answer. Why are we seeing this in your opinion? Like what, what, what is going on? I mean, I, again. No, I, I think it's always been like this. So when a generation after another come, why to change? Change is very hard. I think the hardest thing, and that's why what, the U.S. What do you want them to change? No, I want them to think. Now, it's not about changing. I want people to take a deep breath, read Dr. Ayesha's butt article, and answer me why our denominator is small. Why are we not casting a wider net? That's all. Because, because I think this is a bit not only counterintuitive, this is this is a bit destructive. You're you're not serving American patients and you're not serving, you know, your country well by being so exclusive. It's not good. Nasli, what why do you think that's that's happening? That's a great question. I think there's several reasons um that is happening in several different levels. Um, they are all embedded in like different levels of the struggles that the um, IMGs go through. I would think that there is there is improvement, but I think what we lack is that the appreciation of the struggles that the IMGs go through, and the you know multilingual multicultural experience that they could bring into the system. So I think we need to start embracing that more and perhaps just, you know, unite as IMGs and AMGs um, to, you know, bring the best to do with Americans, as Dr. Chueri said. And um, and it shouldn't be that challenging if we identify the um, main structural reasons causing this. Uh, we just need to, I guess, unite and think more. So, Tarek, I, I don't want this to be IMGs versus non-IMGs, right? I mean, how can we actually take that away out and just realize that this is about having the best physician possible to serve the patient? I mean, do we really care if you if all of us, we are going to be sick at some point? I mean, Tony is already sick with COVID. He would want the best doctor to treat him from COVID, that's why he called me and I, I took care of him. But in general, do you really care where that person is from? How do we take that bias out? Yeah, um, that's an important question. Um, I think I think the biggest thing for IMGs is we, we are not viewed as a diversity. You know, we're not, like when we say diversity in the US, like IMGs is not in that category, right? Um, and so people can still freely, you know, exclude IMGs without any retaliation or, or anything. It's just, you know, the, the, the culture that we're talking about, right? The status quo, like the things that are not changing, like this institution takes only one or two IMGs a year, and that's going to stay like that for 20 years. Um, or for example, we know this program is IMG friendly because all the IMGs get accepted there versus a program that is like lock, like don't even waste money on applying there. So I guess part of it is the status quo that Dr. Shwari said, like we're not challenging that status quo. We're just, we just like, if you're an IMG and you get to where you want to be, you're never really going back and saying, Oh, I need to fix or improve or, or, uh, you know, um, change things for the better 
and allow for advocacy for IMGs and be more inclusive. I think, yeah, part of it is us too, like as IMGs, you know, like we're not challenging the status quo. We're just keeping things be and moving on with our lives. And, uh, and again, IMGs are not viewed as a diversity. And so that, that for, for programs, they can filter us out just with a click uh, on a computer and no one can see your application or know you even existed. Um, and so I think, I think it's you know what this is I, I want to this is a very very good point I want to make sure you spend a couple of minutes on this when you say click you out and filter you uh -huh. some folks don't understand that process do you want to explain what that means because I totally agree that this is easily done right yeah um so you know most matches in the U.S. whether for residencies or fellowships they go through the ERAS uh, which is the platform that allows you to upload everything about yourself uh, and submit it to whoever. Usually, I think 99% of residencies and fellowships use that same that same uh, platform. And so uh, in that um, uh, platform, you you specify your characteristics, like your your medical school, when you're born, when you graduated, what type of visa you need and stuff like that. And so I think programs receive those characteristics and I don't know how it happens on the other side, but I do know that there are filters in place and they can choose. I only want to see the AMGs that apply to this program. I want to see people that don't need visas that apply to this program. And so they can choose who, which applications to review, basically. And this has been heavily criticized. And I think um, what I've been seeing is that programs should not be allowed to do that. Like They should be more holistic in their approach and try to at least give a fair shot to all applicants that have at least paid money and put efforts into applying. Although I know some programs have been getting thousands and thousands of applications, so it can be a bit cumbersome, but, um, I, I can, I can tell you, I can tell you, I was a program director for HEMAC for four years and, and I was told by my institution that they cannot sponsor a H1 visa and that they cannot do jail. I was literally told. So I filtered everybody who does not have a green card or... Um, and, but, uh, but Shadi, without interrupting you, you know, uh, I like when people ask, so why, why? So for example, if this is me, and if I wasn't, I would ask why, and they'd say, because we can. And then I would ask again, why? And then they say, because we can't. And I'm happy to ask it 500 times till at the end of the day, Let's say, I tell you why, because this person said it. Great. So you take it, walk, you go to that person say, so why, why, why? And I bet you, I would bet you, I would bet you my iPhone, it's new, that it's someone down in the basement or in whatever floor thinking it's a bit hard because it's hard. It's one form or two form for a J1, probably 10 form for an H1. It's at a couple of hundred dollars for J1 couple of thousand dollars for H1, but measure that to the healthcare in the US measured in billion or trillions, you know, and it's extra work on someone who can take that decision, you know, uh, because you have to trust that someone who's handling those visas because even the CEO of the hospital probably has no idea how this, you know, come. I remember one of my former bosses, we wanted to recruit a very, very, uh, you know, prominent person from a different country, most prominent, it was how, 
But then this person coming, my boss asked me, can we give them a green card? I mean, this this is like a full professor of medicine, you know, a socialite who understand things. Like I said, what? what? It's like, yeah, can we give them a green card? I'm like, can you give me a billion dollars? Like, you know, throwing, it tells you the level of not understanding this. But, but again, two issues. Your task force in oncology, 30, 40% is IMG. Second, you're excluding 40% of people who can increase, you know, your uh, workforce very possibly to a better. I don't think that, because of the resilient thing we talked about, you're looking at the best of the best who decide to do this. So you're not serving, not yourself or your hospital. You're not serving your patient. Therefore, you're not serving your country well. Right. And, and that is wrong. Aisha, another finding in your paper. So just to continue what Dr. Choweri was saying, um, as part of our paper, when we were looking at different studies that actually showed that IMGs were more likely to serve in rural areas or underserved communities and more likely to take care of people of color. And there were studies, large studies, looking at the outcomes of patterns of care for IMGs. And they there was a study that showed that they had excellent outcomes, come, uh, even better in some cases to American MDs. So the point here is that if you're excluding the school of applicants, you're hurting American patients at the end. You're hurting your own patients and they're not getting the best providers that they could have gotten, especially people who are, um, especially people of color, uh, people in underserved areas. You're at the end hurting your hurting society and patients in general. And one thing that's important to acknowledge, and I feel like a lot of people aren't aware of, is the magnitude of the contributions of IMGs to the physician workforce. Like overall, they're one fourth of the physician workforce in the US. In Hemong, they're 37% of all hematologists, oncologists. So this is not like a tiny minority we are talking about. They form a huge bulk of the physician workforce. So it's important to, yes, um, study their contributions or the outcomes, whether academic or clinical, so that you have the data to support your arguments, but to like acknowledge and that yes, IMGs are a part and an important part of the workforce. So you should like not shy away from recruiting them in the first place. Because I feel like once people reach a certain state in their careers or their, their faculty, they're more easily acknowledged even if they're IMGs. But to get people to that stage, you have to give them a chance in the earlier stages of their career when they're applying for residency or for fellowship. So, yes, that was one thing. Uh, Zia, do you want to reflect on uh, what Aisha said in terms of that findings and and uh, uh, any surprises there? Any comments on that? Yeah, I, I have to say none of this seems surprising to me just based on my, it sort of reflects my personal experience with throughout the process where we go through these and we're uh, and echoing what Tarek said earlier. I do think that it's sort of, it's still socially accepted to show overt bias uh, towards IMGs. And that's sometimes in writing, sometimes in verbal, um, it, it's sort of, it's sort of interviews where you, you will see sort of overt bias in a way that I don't think is socially accepted in, in, in most other contexts. And I think that is still normalized in many ways, uh, saying things like 
celebrating, uh, for instance, a low IMG percentage in a program as as being some sort of positive outcome uh, or seeing it as a proxy for being a, a better program, even when you are there interviewing with that person. I, I have to say, I've, I've been very fortunate. The environment I've been in, although sort of, as you mentioned, does not have the, the largest number of IMGs has never, I've never experienced that in this current environment. And, and, and I've, I've been very fortunate <clears throat> in this environment to not experience this. But when I was sort of interviewing at other places, et cetera, I, I used to see that regularly and sort of advertise. Um, and so I do see, see this bias reflected in my personal experience. I don't find it surprising. And just to go back to one other thing about the structural barriers and and, and why I think there is this bias. Some of it is just personal bias. And I think that that exists across the spectrum of sort of the, the, the across the spectrum of, of sort of any sort of minority or any sort of group that is uh, has unfavorable outcomes. But I think the other one that uh, as a group, as, as IMGs and as, as people advocating for IMGs spend time on is what are the structural barriers? And we've alluded to this multiple times. I think the biggest one is probably funding and funding restrictions for IMGs and uh, how that looks like is these T32 grants or whatever, and, 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 ha and whether that's in the part of training or whether later in their career where you're required to have a certain sort of immigration status, meaning a green card or passport to be able to I think that's a huge barrier, and I think that sort of trickles down to the other barriers, um, and including the visas, et cetera. I think if we're if we're gonna get make sort of headways, part of it is advocacy and changing minds, but it's also about changing structural barriers and tackling these huge structural barriers. Aisha, other findings in your paper? The main findings were regarding the perceptions, uh, but one. It interesting thing that happened during the peer review process and it probably ties into what Zayat is saying about how it's socially acceptable to kind of be a little biased against IMGs. So we had a line in there, it was based on literature review and based on NRMP data that IMG fellowship applicants were likely to have more a higher mean number of uh, papers and presentations, like their mean number is 16 compared to eight for USMDs. And we simply wrote that. We quoted NRMP data and we said, IMGs are more academically productive at the time of fellowship application. And our one of our reviewers was like, well, I don't agree with this. Uh, maybe they're doing this out of desperation to stay in the US. So I don't like the word academically productive here. So we had to take out academically productive and we were like, okay, NRMP says that IMG fellowship application applicants have a mean number of this presentation. So wow. it was like, even that, when you- That is really, really interesting. I wanna talk, uh, I wanna have the most published one in this crew uh, comment on that. Tony, uh, what are your yeah, thoughts that, here? That, that's borderline. I don't know what the right word. I would, Aisha, and I know you, you that, I would have gone to the, you know, editor and voiced a complaint uh, with this uh, reviewer. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to say, but uh, I would say if you ask five people, at least one would say that's racist. Sadly, it is. I mean, that's one of explanation of I hope it's not. Uh, but that's not that's 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 unacceptable comment, I think it could be easily 
the fact that in order to get a residency, not in a small program or this, if you want to go like Ziyad at Brigham, Nazli at Yale, Tariq now at Duke, you probably need an edge in terms of research. So you came, you did three, four years of research. Of course, who does three, four years of research? You are lucky also. You have like uh, Ziyad, first author in Nature Calm, Nazli Nature Medicine, etc. Of course you can. It's not because you're IMG. I mean, I think the person that made that comment has probably a poor statistical judgment. Uh, it's just the nature of the thing rather than... But it goes it, it goes to the bias. Uh, it, law, it goes said, exactly right? to the bias. This and it really, this person yeah, yeah. that he may not or she may not or they may not be, you know, this enough. Is a, this it, is, it is a really very, sad. It's yeah. a very sad comment. This is a very good example of uh, of of uh, bias that you mentioned, Tarek. You know the the one thing I in my mind and again just being simplifying things. In order for me to buy that there is discrimination against IMGs, what you need to convince me is that the only reason somebody does not get picked into a program is because they are IMG. I think there are a lot of these variable factors. So if I'm interviewing you and interviewing Nasli, for example, you know, I, you know, she's possibly she's, you know, better and she's from uh, the US than the IMG. I, I, I totally understand the descriptive analysis that Aisha did. And I commend you for doing this. We're all IMG. So I was very happy to see that there's somebody who's actually exploring this. What I'm struggling with is can we conclusively know what's behind it? Now, the example you gave of the reviewer is very black and white in my view, right? This is very clear example. Are there other examples, Tarek, you can comment on where we can really, because I, I do think, I like what Tony said, we need to advocate, right? We need to have advocate, advocate, advocate. And as we advocate, we need to bring examples to people and say, look, this is what's actually going on. It's not just descriptive. We, It's happening. And we need to reverse this. I mean, I guess numbers uh, is the biggest thing you can rely on. Um, I don't know if programs are willing to disclose how many, you know, AMGs they get. Uh, you know, applications from AMGs they get versus IMGs and how many are selected for interviews from AMGs versus IMGs and then how many gets get ranked because even if you interview, it doesn't mean that you're going to rank them. I, I think numbers are the strongest data you have because um, no one's going to tell you I, I do this or that, right? Like no one's going to disclose that. Um, but I think numbers are the biggest asset that we have. And exactly what Aisha mentioned, like if 50% of IMGs match versus over 90 of AMGs, like how, how, like if we're not really discriminating, it should be equal, right? Like, or, or close. Yeah, right, yeah. right, 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 right. Um, so I, I guess that's, that's my so I want to move to solutions in the I'm last second. I'm sorry, Tari and Shadi, but I, I think there could be discrimination in some way, not just that. The comment that Aisha made about that reviewer, remember, that reviewer made that comment. It's very bothersome, no doubt. And that reviewer knows that their identity will not be revealed. It's right. almost like right. 
those comments on CNN or like the Twitter when you have people taking the other and may, they know they can be there like in a room. And that tells you exactly what this person thinks. So it could be they're right, but it certainly beg the question, uh, they're discriminated. Yeah. Uh, so I think that that's really eye-opening. So I, I want to move, I think I want to, in the last segment, and I know we've been going for an hour, I, I want to go into solutions a little bit. Uh, Aisha, um, in your paper, uh, after you eloquently described the problem and the data, what are your proposed solutions to the problem and what are the next steps? Um, so I feel like one of the important things is further research into this both on in terms of what is contributing to the bias or why are why is there like a 50% match rate because the way you were saying that is this a bias or are there other factors playing to it into it because we need to identify what's the reason behind this to move towards a solution so more research into those reasons then more awareness in general about the contributions of IMGs to the field whether it's theme onc or in medicine in general because i feel like a lot of people uh, at a lot of very prestigious institutions they they do not even know about this and they often view like IMGs as like some 0.2% of like minority of physicians somewhere. They they don't realize the magnitude. The other thing is institutional support for visas. And, and it, like Dr. Tuary was mentioning, at the end, it's always one or two people in some office at every institution deciding the fate of all of the international physicians or researchers working at that particular institution. So like a proper st streamlined platform that makes it makes the whole visa process easier, at least at every institution and makes it standardized. And so that the visa thing doesn't become a hurdle for well-qualified physicians or researchers to reach where they should be in their careers. Zia, so I, what are, yeah, go on. Yeah. Sorry. So all of these, I guess, research, visa issues, all of this together. Ziad, in your own words, uh, solutions, and uh, uh, and I want to make sure we plug in the Twitter handle at IMG Oncologist. But uh, please, any thoughts or solutions? Yeah, uh, echoing Aisha first, and thank you for the plug. I think part of it, and I'm the sort of our, our initiative, IMG on, underscore on, causes, uh, on, on Twitter is sort of part of that advocacy effort that Aisha mentions, I think, being visible and sort of having a united sort of um, sort of a united front to be able to, 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 to make the case that IMGs are playing an important role, whether through research or through clinical care, and that you know, um, that they are playing an important role. So I think that is part of it. And uh, I I hope that your followers will follow us on Twitter uh, so that we can amplify that message. Um, I think the second one is education. And I'll, I'll allow myself to give an, an, another plug. And that means education both for the, for the sort of leadership as well as for um, sort of people who are applying. And so in that effort, we're organizing a, a webinar coming up soon, November 7th, uh, with an immigration lawyer to talk about a lot of these issues. And so hopefully that will be the first of many webinars to promote education in this space. And I think the third one is, in addition to just advocacy and, and trying to change minds, trying to change the structural barriers. And I do think that's probably, and that's probably longer term, take more time, especially if we're talking about sort of federal level 
or state level barriers to to to, to getting I, I, IMGs involved. I think those are more involved processes, but definitely that will give us the biggest bang for a buck. And um, and that is primarily funding mechanisms, both at the residency level, at the fellowship level, at the sort of independent career level, trying to remove barriers that uh, that don't allow uh, certain folks to get funding. Um, and I think uh, I think those three, the combination of those three would, would bring us a long way. Dark. I mean, everybody has already voiced incredible um, uh, thoughts. I think for me, it's just to have an open mind and be holistic in your approach. Like, um, and it's easy to say minimize bias, minimize discrimination, like no matter who it's, who it is against. Um, but, but really, it, it starts from maybe one person to change one department, to change one institution, and then to change a whole culture. Um, you know, inclusivity, giving people a chance. I think we, we don't even need to talk about IMGs. We've, we like look at this incredible group of people here and, and many others in, in, in organizations and in institutions in academic research and leadership. Like no matter how you look, you always find an IMG who's really accomplished so much and real role models. And I think, as Aisha had said, you know, to give that person the chance to reach that potential, the momentum starts from their early, early careers. And so, you know, I guess my message is be that person that, you know, you know, gives these folks the chance to shine and become incredible, incredibly successful and accomplished uh, individuals. Mazli? I'll echo what everyone had said. I would perhaps said that maybe we could try to involve large uh, national associations in medical oncology or hematology. Actually, ASCO um, held a few um, roundtable discussions regarding finding research positions before residency, before fellowship, um, during the ASCO 2022 meeting this year, perhaps we may try to expand on that a little bit, um, try to bring the visa discussions um, in those fronts as well. Um, and, you know, as um, Tarek mentioned, that 30% of, actually 30% of the um, ASCO members are probably IMGs too, if those are the, like, the this is the percentage of the oncologists um, in the United States. So 30% of the ASCO members are AMGs as well. So that is a relevant topic to at least one third of the population, most likely to everyone, of the, all of the oncology population. So try to involve um, large associations in that as would probably be helpful. I'll probably add one more thing, most of the IMG is interested in medical oncology. They go through these like research years uh, before residency. I do believe that IMGs have are, are attracted into the research opportunities in the United States. I think that the reason to come to the United States is not just to practice uh, medicine, also involved in research, especially in um, aspiring hematologist, oncologist, IMGs. So most of us, even me, my mentors, everyone get emails from IMGs looking for uh, research opportunities. I think trying to circle them around, trying to find a place for those people 
trying to learn more research uh, would also be something to add in that list to you. Tony, I want to. I wanted to bring all of this together in terms of uh, proposed solutions. After you heard everything, that I just have two comments before you give us some. You know, uh, one is uh, just a thought. Uh, I love the IMG oncologists. I follow the Twitter feed, and I love it. Um, one possibility is to consider taking away the oncologists out of it. There are IMG's cardiology, IMG uh, other specialties, and I think. I suspect, although I have zero data, that it's not really unique to oncology. We're obviously selfish, we're all oncologists, but I do think the problem is likely beyond oncology. And number two, I really loved the, um, Ziad was mentioning the webinar that uh, with the lawyer, which is great. And I saw that it's actually on my calendar. I actually wonder, Tony, uh, whether there's an opportunity to do an annual conference one day uh, for IMGs uh, in oncology, like an annual event that we could do it like, uh, you know, any thoughts? I mean, I love that we're raising awareness, but I feel that we need to start making progress in the next couple of years. So take us home. I think this issue has been for decades and decades since the ABIM started. So I don't think things can change overnight. Uh, you know, we haven't reached the tipping point. You know, that's Malcolm Gladwell's famous book. Uh, but we may reach it soon. I think uh, I would like, we would like to start by IMG Oncologists, because that's what we know. Learn from good and less good practices and then see what happens. I think a lot of folks want to team up with us. And I think I think that the biggest uh, uh, you know, thing here and the biggest picture is if we're all moving like the six of us to, you know, a, you know, the greatest country on earth, why do you want to decrease the pool, you know, the denominator? It doesn't make any sense. It's silly. Uh, so when I start a conversation, I don't think things are going to change overnight. Uh, but it's good to raise awareness first, even if it's gonna take some time. It's good to gather data. It's good, like Dr. Bott and others, uh, you know, gather scientific data and put it there. So then the person that gave her, whoever they are, that nasty comment, you just, this is the data. I mean, you, you could not believe in the data, uh, but then that's not science and you put them in their place. And I think it's a, it's a good start. Uh, you know, we, no one likes to hear someone showing off that their program doesn't have an IMG, therefore that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, you know, that, that, that's not good. That's not American. You know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a story that was that preceded all of you. Uh, it would be maybe nice. I'll have you actually reflect on it, and then maybe we need to wrap up because I'm I, I have enough research to tell you that people don't like to listen more than an hour. But I do think this topic it's impossible to cover in one hour. When I was an intern, um, there was I forgot there was some legislation going on or something. Uh, it was 1996. I was actually a second year resident at the time. My internship was 95. And there was something proposed by either the AMA or, or something I remember to minimize the number of IMGs because there was a thought that they actually are taking the job opportunities from American graduates. So my claim of fame was CNN had a, a CNN and it aired on ABC. 
there was a reporter that the reason they came into Loyola University as my residency is because there were three IMGs out of 40 categorical people, and I was one of them. And and they interviewed me, and, and one of the questions literally was, um, and they interviewed the American grad as well, and they said, how do you feel that there are people out there who are American graduates that they are saying that you're taking their jobs? Uh, I'm not saying I'm sophisticated now, but I was like a lowly intern, had no idea how to answer this to the reporter. Like I, I, I didn't know what to say, but there is a there was a perception, and maybe there's a perception today that the six of us have taken American jobs. No, we're American. No, no, we're not before taking, I wasn't I wasn't American. I wasn't American. Yeah, no, that but it, it is the wrong, it is the wrong because if you are a sick person, you really want the yeah. best people to take care of you. And maybe one day the best people will be outside the U.S., sadly, if you continue this narrow-minded, uh, silly, un-American, un-American uh, mentality. That's yeah. as simply as that. Well, this was really, first of all, congratulations on starting the research. Everybody has to follow IMG underscore oncologists. And... Um, is there anything that we did not cover that we should really make sure our listeners go home with? Did no, Shadi. We addressed everything? Okay, well, I really appreciate it. I really want to thank you, and I'm hoping that the next time we meet, we have made significant progress because of your work, your dedication, and your continued research. Okay, folks. Well, uh, thank you very much for uh, tuning in and being part of this podcast. I hope you learned about international medical graduates on this podcast. I hope you learned about the challenges, about the obstacles, and I hope you can join us as a full force to overcome these challenges. We need your help. We need your support. We need your advocacy because ultimately we want the right patient to treat the right to be treated by the right physician and the most qualified physician. As always, let me know how I'm doing and don't forget to reach out to me either on Twitter, uh, direct message me at Shadi Nabhan or via my website, www.shadinabhan.com. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by a Lebanese poet and writer. It's very fitting for this episode of International Medical Graduates. Khalil Gibran, or Khalil Gibran. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time, take care.